it's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. From the most powerful city in the world, a new generation of conservative talk. Fair, fresh, fun. It's the Guy Benson Show with Guy Benson. It's Monday, February the 14th, 2022, Valentine's Day. Happy Valentine's Day, everyone. I'm Guy Benson, and welcome to the Guy Benson Show. Every weekday, 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern Time. And if you miss any of the show as we air, there's a podcast. It is on demand. It is free. GuyBensonShow.com every single day. Programming note, we, of course, have the radio program here. We also have TV duties. Tonight, it's special report. I'll be on the panel with Brett Bayer and company right around 645, we believe, Eastern Time. Hope to see you there on Fox News Channel. Radio side, we've got a lineup in store for you today, Molly Hemingway is going to drop by later on this hour. A lot to get to with her. Some big news over the weekend that I want to get her take on. The special counsel, John Durham, with some allegations and revelations that are quite significant but have largely been ignored by most in the press. Molly will fill us in on that. Jessica Tarloff will also be here, our chief romance correspondent here at the show, appropriately enough on Valentine's Day. Also, some new polling Really bad for Joe Biden. Not that that's new. It's just been a drumbeat of terrible polling for the president for months at this point. But this is among Democrats. Jesse Tarloff is one of our Democratic friends here. So we will ask her what she makes of those numbers from CNN, actually. And finally, in our last hour, Brian Kilmeade, our Fox News colleague, our Fox News radio colleague. He's going to be here. He's got a brand new show on FNC on weekends. We'll ask him about that. Plus, he's a sports guy. So his review of the Super Bowl last night, I watched all of it. We will also break down the ads and the halftime show. That's all coming up in the final hour. Fox News alert as we begin today's show. Stats, COVID cases, all in over the course of the pandemic in the United States, 77.6 million. The real number is well into the... 100 million plus, probably 200 million at this point. The good news is cases have collapsed after the uh, the big surge in Omicron over the holidays. Just in the last two weeks, cases are down 67 percent, two thirds gone in the U.S. The death toll continues to climb, but for the first time in a while, thankfully, and this goes to the phenomenon that we've talked about now for two years, the lagging indicator of deaths, now deaths are coming down again. Down 3% over two weeks ago, but the overall toll, of course, is up. 918,373 Americans have died with or of COVID over the last nearly two years. The Dow is down today, 266 points, trading at 34,470. Part of that probably due to jitters over what could be an imminent war in Europe. The United States has pulled out and closed our embassy in Kiev. 
that is clearly an indication that we believe in the United States that Russia is going to not only invade Ukraine soon, but could very well march to Kiev and take over the country's capital. There is still apparently diplomacy underway. I think some of that is just a shell game by the Russians keeping that hope alive. But there are reports that President Biden has told people our intelligence suggests that the Russians are planning to invade the day after tomorrow. So Wednesday, the 16th, the Ukrainian president put out a message saying the same thing. Although his office then suggested that it might have been an ironic thing that he was saying. I'm not sure that that's necessarily a topic for anything other than clarity from a leader. But the likelihood of an invasion, I would say, continues to rise. And we have some intelligence coming in reported in the U.S. press that the Russians are starting to maneuver in a more aggressive way, which would point toward an invasion that's coming. So there could very well be a hot land war, shooting war in Ukraine, in Eastern Europe, in a matter of days. We hope not. If it happens, it's the fault of one entity and really one person. The government of Russia personified by Vladimir Putin. But at least for now, they are pretending or going through the motions on diplomacy. We'll get to some of that later in the show and also, of course, later in the week as developments require. I mentioned a moment ago the Super Bowl, sort of one of our last remaining cultural gathering places in the United States. We have fractured so much. We have our own little silos that we inhabit. There's not really the same type of shared culture in this country that there used to be. And some of that is not necessarily bad. Some of it probably is. But Super Bowl Sunday is a national celebration of football, of course, for those who are fans, but also of ridiculous quantities of food, alcohol, entertainment, TV commercials. There's something for everyone on Super Bowl Sunday. And then there's always the people who are insistent to post on social media that they are not watching one moment of anything to do with the Super Bowl because they just don't care. Okay, pat on the head. That's fine. Good for you. But what, 100 million of us watched or so, that's typically the number. And it was another really good game. We'll talk about that with Brian Kilmeade later. There was a moment in the telecast. It was an NBC year. The way that it works, I don't know if you know this, but it cycles through the major networks. So Fox, for example, Big Fox, they'll have a Super Bowl. And then the next year, and I'm not necessarily getting the order correct, but it'll be Fox, then it'll be CBS, then it'll be ESPN slash ABC, then it'll be NBC. And then back through the rotation, whatever order it happens to be in. This is an NBC year, or it was. So you had Al Michaels on the call, Chris Collinsworth, Michelle Tafoya apparently on the sidelines retiring some allegations that she's being pushed out because of her conservative views. She's doing an interview today. She'll be on Gutfeld tomorrow night. So that is something we're going to keep an eye on. I've always been a fan of Michelle Tafoy's. I think she's a total pro doing her job, you know, patrolling the sidelines at sporting events now for many years on sports telecasts. But there was a moment last night, this montage, and this is not atypical, Right, where they'll go around and say, look at all the famous people who are here at the game. And they'll have the camera people find them, and they'll just cut from shot to shot to shot 
of celebrities and prominent athletes and politicians, just famous folks who were there. And this being Los Angeles, the game was held in Los Angeles and the Los Angeles Rams won. You're going to have even more celebrities than usual because it's right in their backyard. Look at all the beautiful people who've turned out in force at SoFi Stadium to take in the Super Bowl. And as many people pointed out, as NBC went through shot after shot after shot of these celebrities, there was a common theme. Not a single one of them was wearing a mask. Not one as they went through these household names. There was a photograph that also went viral, again, of the mayor of Los Angeles, Mayor Garcetti, again not wearing a mask inside. He did the same thing two weeks ago at the football game. He claimed he was holding his breath. Really, he did. We talked about it. We made fun of him. We ridiculed him for that. It was insulting. Well, I guess he was holding his breath again. In this photo, his mouth is open, so it's really an amazing feat. This man is a physical specimen. Is holding his breath for hours at a time. It's very impressive. Snark aside, the lesson was very clear. The pandemic is over. These people, these bien pensants on the left, right, all these good celebrities and they're good liberals, they did not fear any backlash from showing up to this indoor place without a mask on. And so they didn't. And their beautiful faces were out there for everyone to see. And I think everyone just understands it's over at this point. COVID's not over. But the idea that we're going to continue putting in all these restrictions and enforcing them, I mean, in most cases, I think people are over it. And from our cultural and political leaders, that message has been pretty clear now for a while. One thing that was maddening, because I flew yesterday Heading back to D.C., you still have to wear your mask where the federal government requires you to, like on airplanes. And I don't think they're going to give that up anytime soon. doesn't matter what the science says. doesn't matter what the data says. doesn't matter if they circulate air through the plane well. And you can take it off if you're eating and drinking that. I mean, they're just going to stick to some of these things, I think, until they are sort of clawed back. But the only people as a group who seem to be still forced on a regular basis to wear masks for long periods of time, are children to continue to flog this issue that we've been beating to death, you might say, as an issue now for weeks and months and more than a year, actually. But especially in recent months, we've been all over this. At the Super Bowl last night, there was a children's orchestra performing, and you had... This amazing shot where all the famous people and all the fans are unmasked. Tons of shots of the crowd, just people not wearing masks. The athletes aren't masked. The people singing as these children perform are not masks, but the or not wearing masks. But the children playing the instruments, they are still masked. And though you had celebrity after celebrity like, you know, Ellen and Martha Stewart and, and just everyone. Anyone, Ryan Reynolds I saw, Magic Johnson was back, on and on it goes. You name a celebrity, they were there not wearing a mask. But this morning, the school children of Los Angeles had to wake up and put those masks back on and go to school for eight hours. 
And there were headlines that I saw just recently that even as the state of California is loosening their indoor mask mandates, the kids will likely still have to keep wearing them at least into March. Here in Washington, D.C., they're lifting some vaccine requirements for restaurants and stuff. They're lifting the indoor mask mandate at the end of February, but not for kids in schools. It is craven. It is anti-science. It is absolutely ridiculous. And it is cruel. That the people at the lowest risk of severe COVID continue to be abused this way by adults wrapping themselves in the cloak of science while ignoring the science. And no, I'm not going to get over it. Until it's finally done, until the injustice has been put to rest. I saw a tweet over the weekend. There's this person, Mehdi Hassan, who's an MSNBC host. And he's sort of channeling what the hardcore leftist cult believes. He tweeted this, keep mask mandates, especially in schools. Keep vaccine mandates where possible. Bring in a damn vaccine mandate for domestic air travel via executive order. Send out more free high quality masks and rapid tests on a monthly basis. Tie opening up to a booster uptake percentage. And then he adds at the end, total non sequitur, expand the Supreme Court. There's a little, uh, little court packing for good measure at the end. And a bunch of trained SEALs on the left were retweeting and liking that. Yes, brilliant. Keep those vaccine mandates. Keep those mask mandates. Yes, especially in schools. You tell them, Medi. Make people put these things on and make them have a vaccine just to fly from Boston to New York. You can't fly domestically without a vaccine. Do it. One thing that he also mentioned in that little weird tweet of his, and he like doubled and tripled down on it and was saying, oh, I've, I've triggered the conservatives. No, you've just triggered anyone who knows anything about the data or the science, dude. That's it. That's who you've triggered with your idiocy performing for your left-wing audience. By the way, and as an aside, earlier in his life, as an adult, Mehdi Hassan insulted non-Muslims, saying that they were like cattle. He said some very homophobic things. He's since apologized. Oh, I was stupid at the time. I shouldn't have said those things. He's not one who believes in accepting apologies and forgiving people. We're more about that here. We like to give people grace, although, again, this is not something he extends to anyone else. But it looks like he has moved sort of his fanaticism from his version of Islam and saying things about non-Muslims and gay people. He's just shifted that over to leftism now. And now if you're a heretic in that realm, he's going to come after you. But one of his suggestions, if you will, in that tweet was to send out more rapid tests on a monthly basis, which got me thinking before I take a break here. I'm pretty sure the government, which dropped the ball badly under President Biden on testing. In fact, they rejected reportedly a plan to have a bunch of tests available for free for the American people before the holidays. They decided against that because they thought it might discourage people from getting vaccinated, which was short sighted and stupid. So we had a huge spike in cases, a massive shortage in testing in a lot of places. You couldn't get tested right around the holidays. And then belatedly after that, they said, "Okay, we have a new plan. We're getting tests. You go to this website, you put in your address and we're going to send four tests to everyone in your household. 
And that rolled out in, what, mid to late January. People said, see, the government's finally getting their eye on the ball and the website's working. That's the very low bar now. If the website doesn't crash, it's like, ooh, look at this competence compared to like Obamacare, for example. The website's working. How many of you have gotten those tests? Anecdotally, I heard a few people got them late last week. A lot of people that I know who ordered them almost a month ago still have not gotten their tests. Still. And Omicron is gone. Cases are down two-thirds. These things are going to show up in the coming weeks just in the nick of not time. Your government at work forcing kids to wear masks in schools. That's still the federal policy, still the Biden policy, still the, uh, still the CDC policy. While every adult, especially beautiful, famous ones, they can do whatever they want. It's nuts. We live in a crazy time with people who are crazy running the show far too often. I may not be crazy, but I'm running late, and I have to break. I will take the break and come right back. A brand-new broadcast week underway on The Guy Benson Show. Stay with us. The Guy Benson Show. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, subscribe and listen to the Trey Gowdy Podcast. Former federal prosecutor and four-term U.S. congressman from South Carolina brings you a -a one-of-a-kind podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. I'm Guy Benson. We are back on The Guy Benson Show. We just confirmed for tomorrow General Jack Keane to start off the program. And if U.S. intelligence supposedly is to be believed, there could be a Russian invasion of Ukraine as soon as this Wednesday. And we have some sound for you later this hour from a press conference at the Pentagon, which didn't really tell us all that much. But if you read between the lines, it sounds like the U.S. government believes that this is happening and it is happening soon. I know that there is a song and dance happening where the Russians are saying, oh, Lavrov, the foreign minister, is saying, well, maybe we want to hold off. We have to let democracy and rather diplomacy continue to play out. And Putin said, "Okay, yes, let's do that. To me, I'm just suspicious. I think that that sounds like window dressing. So they can then throw up their hands and say, oh, we tried. We did everything that we could, but diplomacy wasn't working, and now we have to invade. Because I just don't trust the Russian government. And Lavrov doesn't give orders to Putin, obviously. All right, Molly Hemingway is up next on another big story here domestically. Stay tuned. Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton with Row. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my <laughs> name is Chad. His name is Jonathan. But you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you'll subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. Will you, if you become chairman of the House Intelligence Committee, if the GOP takes the majority in November, will you hold hearings to finally reveal the truth? What will you do? Uh, Absolutely. We have to get to the truth. I mean, this is a threat to our democracy itself. It doesn't matter really which political campaign this is or which political party this is. This is so wrong. 
It's the Guy Benson Show. We are back. That was an exchange yesterday on Sunday Morning Futures Fox News Channel. You heard the voice of Maria Bartiromo asking a question of a member of Congress, who is Congressman Mike Turner, a Republican member from Ohio, saying that he would, if the Republicans take over the majority as expected in November, call hearings into what a lot of people are framing and describing as a bombshell from John Durham and his investigation into the origins of the Russia probe that emerged over the weekend. And based on what I've seen, almost all of the reporting about this development has been confined to Fox and then right-leaning media or right-wing media. The mainstream press, for the most part, is just crickets. Maybe they're looking around at each other waiting to see Is anyone going to cover this? How do we cover this? What's the framing? Maybe they're waiting on marching orders from their bosses in the Democratic Party. I don't know. But for people who would do, you know, bombshell o'clock during the Trump years and the, the wars and the race between the Post and the Times to publish scoops before the other one, and it was just Russia, 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 there has been, to actually paraphrase a joke that my next guest likes to make on Twitter, if you squint just a little bit, you might detect a slight difference in the tone, tenor, and existence, in some cases, of coverage on this stuff. When the new facts coming to light might cut in the direction opposite the preferred narrative. Let's get to Molly Hemingway, editor-in-chief at The Federalist, Fox News contributor, co-author of Justice on Trial, also author of the book Rigged, you can follow her on Twitter at MZ Hemingway. Molly, congrats on the editor-in-chief promotion, first of all. Thank you very much. And welcome back to the show. Okay, so let's start with this story and what the special counsel has put forward in legal documents. What did we learn over the weekend? Please put this into context because I think a lot of people, their heads are just sort of swimming with all the Russia stuff over the last five years. And we just need to make this bite-sized and digestible. To my eyes, this seems like a pretty big deal. Yeah, as someone who has covered the Russia collusion hoax for years, it reminds me of that meme from It's Always Sunny, where the guy has you know strings attached from you know connecting different things that are of a very complex scenario. Yes. That's definitely yes. how this can be. But what was interesting about what we learned this weekend was that we already knew that the Trump campaign had been spied on. That's well established in previous court documents, inspector general reports, and the like. What we found out this weekend is that the surveillance was a new kind of surveillance that we learned about and that it took place while President Trump was in the White House. And it was not just of the executive office of the president, but it was also of Trump Tower. And the type of surveillance was basically someone exploited the fact that they had access to very sensitive information coming out of the White House and Trump Tower, which is Internet traffic. um, And they exploited their access to that in order to take advantage of that information and try to set it up as if this information suggested that the collusion between Russia and Trump was a real thing. But it's really what's interesting is the surveillance was continuing into the presidency, and it was a new kind of surveillance that we hadn't already known about. So they were not only tracking what Trump was looking at online before he was president, at other locations, but also 
the internet traffic in the executive office of the president after he was elected and inaugurated, they were continuing to look at this data. Who was doing this? Like, who were the people doing the spying here? And just, again, to, to, to clarify, the stuff that we knew about already from national security letters and FISA warrants involved, yes, email communications of Trump campaign officials, confidential human assets that were placed against various uh, campaign officials, you know, traditional spy craft that you might think of. What, what was happening here was that a government contractor who had access, again, to sensitive, meaning private information of Internet traffic, you know, what, what sites were being um, located or what kind Access. of uh, information was being sought, that they exploited that for the Clintons, for the Clinton-related officials. Now, we know already that Hillary Clinton's campaign secretly orchestrated the Russia collusion hoax, secretly bought and paid for the dossier. But this really refers to something that didn't get a ton of attention. She really tried to make it be something that got a lot of attention. But one of her October surprises was about um, an allegation that Trump was secretly communicating with Russia through private servers. And this all relates to that, except that what we've learned is this continued into his time at the White House, um, that they were monitoring this, and it was Clinton-allied people. But then they tried to get the CIA to pick it up, just like they, they tried and succeeded in getting the Department of Justice to pick up their fake dossier. So they were, they were doing, um, you know, we might think of as traditional uh, spying on a campaign, but they were using government resources both to secure the information, but then also to weaponize it. So what are the implications of these new developments? Because it seems like a lot of people in the mainstream press, let's just put this as charitably as possible. Let's just say that they are taking a wait-and-see approach to this. (laughs) Um, If it is borne out by the investigation as it continues, because we're getting just little drips from Durham. seems like every few months we're getting something from him. He's clearly on the case. It's been very thorough. He's been at it now for, what, two years? I mean, he's he's really been going at his own pace, and there was some griping for a while that he wasn't maybe doing anything. Seems like he's actually looking into quite a lot here. And the press, as I alluded to in our opening, introducing you, Molly, they could not get enough of breathless coverage of everything Russia, this collusion accusation or narrative that hung over the Trump presidency for years, they they drove that bus. They couldn't get enough of it. And then when it looks like some of the origins of that whole hullabaloo were manufactured or illegitimate, the coverage of that component has been muted or just totally swept under the rug. That seems to be what we're witnessing at least thus far on this new development. So I guess it's a two-part question, what the implications are of what we seem to be learning here, and then the media coverage aspect. Right. And I would just point out, they like to characterize themselves as mainstream media. They're really neither. They have hardcore agendas, and they don't report the news. You alluded to this with their coverage of the Russia collusion hoax. They would take made-up stories sourced to anonymous officials who had no substantiation to them or nothing that should merit uh, any journalistic standard. They would run wild with those 
for days, for weeks, for months, for years. And here we have an actual court filing related to an actual indictment, and they're saying, oh, we have to take a wait-and-see approach. It's exactly the opposite of how it should be. But the reason why they're not covering it is because they are completely complicit in the collusion hoax. They are the ones who made this um, who made this story go wild. They are the ones who caused so much damage to the country. For them to cover it would mean to take some responsibility for it. So they're only going to cover it up as they have been engaged in such cover-ups cover for some time. But the implications, I think, are so broad. What we saw in the, in the leading up to 2016 and, and then in the years after was a refusal of the establishment, and that includes the corporate media, to accept the results of a free and fair election. They meddled in the election, then they refused to accept that Donald Trump was elected. And to this date, almost nobody has been held accountable. Even the FBI lawyer who falsified evidence in order to go after the Trump campaign and secure a, a FISA warrant on the campaign, he's gotten his law license back. I mean, there's really been no accountability. And until there's accountability, the country cannot recover. And uh, this is this is something where the establishment, the regime, wants no one to be held accountable, and they might have the power to, to make sure it happens. But Durham, lonely though he may be, is making that a little bit more difficult. Are you encouraged by the progress you're seeing from him? I, I mean, I think it's so slow. You think about all the elections that have been affected by Hillary Clinton's Russia collusion hoax. It's 2016. 2018, the midterms were profoundly affected by this lie that Trump had stolen the election in 2016. It affected the outcome of the 2020 election. And this is a lot of elections that the establishment regime has been able to, um, to meddle in without accountability. But it does seem that the work he does is solid. It's just that we really, truly, genuinely need to see very real accountability for this for the country to continue and for us to heal. And it's just taken a long time for not enough. It, it shouldn't just be Durham. You should have a ton of people at the DOJ working to restore the credibility of that agency and all the other government agencies that were involved. You should be seeing mass firings of all these corrupt people in the, in the corporate media. You should be seeing uh, more indictments of the Clinton officials who were involved in this. But it's, you know, but I'm, but I'm optimistic. I do think Durham has been doing good work. So let's talk about this other story about the allegation, I guess, from Maggie Haberman of the New York Times in her book and apparently confirmed by other reporters elsewhere that President Trump would flush documents down the toilet and then I guess he was boxing up classified materials and shipping them off to Mar-a-Lago. Molly, you and I have talked about this stuff on the air and off the air. And one of the problems to me, speaking just for myself, throughout the entire Trump era was that I constantly found myself wrestling with an unreliable narrator problem where when Trump came out and denied, for example, that he was flushing documents down the toilet, I don't necessarily believe him that he's telling the truth because sometimes he does and sometimes he doesn't. And you have multiple reporters talking to multiple sources, unnamed, who say, oh, yes, no, this, this is what staffers witnessed personally at the White House. I also remember that you would have unnamed sources – leak things to journalists, and then the same sources would go to another journalist who would then confirm the previous scoop, and then sometimes those things long after would, would fall apart. So I just don't really know who to believe. I don't believe the anti-Trump critics in the press automatically. I don't trust Trump automatically. What I do know 
is that these allegations about what Trump did in handling some of these documents, which I do think, if true, would be troubling and would you know merit further scrutiny, even though he's not president anymore. He probably wants to be president again. That story got a huge amount of play. I mean, I saw it all over social media. I saw it with you know banner headlines and tons of coverage on some of the other news channels and all of that. I mean, that was just everywhere in the legacy press, whatever you want to call them, the same exact outlets that basically have a cone of silence on the Durham story that we just reported. And that only deepens my my unreliable narrator concern here, because if they're just out there trying to get to the truth and they're very concerned about what Trump allegedly did as president, they should also be equally concerned about the truth coming out on this other front. And they give a huge amount of attention to one thing and virtually none to the other. And my cynicism only grows. I just wonder what your what your reaction is to where I am right now. Yeah, no, I largely agree with that. But I would just point out the burden of proof in this case rests entirely with the people making claims based on anonymous sources and not in any way on Trump, meaning, um, you know, there are times when the burden of proof is on him. But the claim was made by anonymous sources of something. You said it was confirmed by others, but I just want to point out or reiterate what you're saying. Anonymous sources literally can't confirm a report because how do you know who they are and how do you know there's no way to tell they confirm their own reports right that we've seen that game played before oh we've seen it so many times but you know maggie haberman is trying to sell a book that's fine i will say that one thing you know and who knows and she's pretty plugged in right i mean she is she's not as plugged in as she loves to make people think she is. She liked she, you know, during the Trump era, she really crafted this reputation of I'm on the phone with Trump all the time. And that would be true. Even she would make that claim even when he hadn't talked to her for many months or over a year. She still liked to present an image of being pretty plugged in. Uh, you might remember her from the WikiLeaks, where she was reported to be a great asset to the Democratic Party. The Democrats thought that they could really work with her to spread whatever story they wanted to share. But I just want to say this idea that Donald Trump is like boxing up his papers and mailing them. It just I don't think people realize how little the principle would have to do with that type of effort when you are clearing out a White House. So they're trying to make it sound like Donald Trump had like the tape gun and he was taping up boxes and mailing them. And I'm like, you know, who knows who was involved? Yeah, He might have said if there's anything in there that might be bad, let's take it. I mean, I don't know. The point is, I don't know. But I saw that that allegation was everywhere. And then the Durham stuff is nowhere. Yeah. So anonymous reporting that seems carefully crafted to sell a book versus actual indictments. I would cover the actual indictments and legal documents, but people seem to love to cover, you know, the anonymous sources instead. Molly Hemingway, editor-in-chief at The Federalist. She's a Fox News contributor. Her latest book is Rigged on Twitter, at MZ Hemingway. Molly, always appreciate your time, and we'll talk again soon. Thanks, Guy. Talk to you later. It's The Guy Benson Show, and we will be right back. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. We have uh, said for a while now that military action could happen any day. Um, And you heard from the National Security Advisor uh, making it clear that it it certainly could happen before the end of the Olympics, uh, maybe even this week. Um, We have um, shared 
with our allies and partners, and that includes Ukraine, our assessment of the information that uh, that we've been receiving, um, and certainly have reflected in those conversations our deep concern about the continued capabilities that Mr. Putin um, has at his um, has at his beck and call. So I, I won't get into a, a specific date. I don't think that would be smart. I would just tell you that it is entirely possible that he could move with little to no warning. Back on the Guy Benson show, that was John Kirby, Pentagon spokesman, just minutes ago talking about our assessment of what Putin may or may not do when it comes to this expected now invasion of Ukraine. As soon as this Wednesday, the U.S. government has closed, at least temporarily, our embassy in Kiev, which seems like a fairly grim sign. In the meantime, another Fox News alert on a separate breaking story. The judge in the case involving Sarah Palin suing The New York Times for libel has announced to the courtroom that he is dismissing the case against The Times. Even though the jury is currently out deliberating, he has looked at the law and said that Palin has not reached the burden of proof. And it's a very, very high burden of proof for public figures to prove slander or libel. So I'm actually not surprised that the judge reached this conclusion based on the law. But the judge did add, while this is good news for The New York Times, legally speaking, that he, quote, wasn't happy to reach the conclusion that he did because he did see extremely serious lapses ethically, journalistically, by The New York Times when they smeared Sarah Palin by tying her into the shooting of Gabrielle Giffords, the Democratic congresswoman those years ago, out in Arizona. A very egregious episode by The New York Times, but apparently, according to the judge, not libelous. That just breaking here in the last few minutes. Next hour of The Guy Benson Show is coming up. Jesse Tarloff and more. Stay with us. Live from the most powerful city in the world, unconventional talk from a fresh, unconventional conservative, Guy Benson Show. A brand new hour here on The Guy Benson Show. I'm Guy Benson. Thank you very much for tuning in every weekday, 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern, around the clock, on demand for free on the podcast, GuyBensonShow.com. I'll be on special report tonight on the panel, a lot to get to with Brett Bayer and company there, probably around quarter to seven Eastern Fox News Channel. Fox News alert as we begin our middle hour. The Dow closes down 172 points today, ending the day at 34,500 and 65. Joining us now is Jessica Tarloff, who is co-host of The Five, a Fox News contributor, head of research at Bustle, and both our chief romance correspondent at this show and chief baby correspondent, as she is a new mother, at The Guy Benson Show. And Jesse, first of all, welcome back. Thank you so much. I want to tell you something about one of your titles that might interest you. I was down okay. in Atlanta doing the show last week. We had a listener event with our affiliate, Extra 106.3, and there was a young woman there who had won tickets to come to the event with her husband, a 20-something couple. She was pregnant with, I believe, their third, if memory serves. And her husband, their regular listeners, did point out that if I ever needed a new chief motherhood or baby correspondent on the show, he was volunteering his wife as tribute. Uh, Not that he was questioning your bona fides, but 
you might have some competition is all I'm saying. But that being said, you are also crucially chief romance correspondent at the show. And today is, in fact, a manufactured day of romance, Valentine's Day. And I wonder what your plans are, how you're going to meld these two hats that you wear, mother, romance correspondent, all the things. What's the game plan for this evening? Well, we were just talking about it. Um, We don't have official plans because that's just what life is now. Um, But my husband was suggesting this restaurant that I do like and I guess has availability and isn't doing the preset menu. The preset menu is the big groan of all Valentine's Day dining. I was just talking to producer Christine about it because her husband, Bobby, rightfully hates that. It's just like, let us go to a place that we like and order a la carte and be normal people. So we may be going to this restaurant, Charlie Bird, which if you're in the New York City area is wonderful, or just the place on the corner that we go to basically every night. We were there last night for the Super Bowl, um, and that's about it. We are very lucky to have. By the way, you're giving away your location of the paparazzi. I just want to make yeah, you aware I, I don't of that. think much of the paparazzi is coming for me. I think your new chief romance <laughs> correspondent or baby correspondent might get more uh, more <laughs> pap love than me. Um, so nothing that terribly exciting. Are you guys doing anything special and romantic? Uh, not really. I mean, we might we might dine in. We might cook. We'll probably get to that a little bit later mm-hmm. in the show. But I'm looking for guidance from you. I mean, this is why we have you. This is this is the purpose of your well, existence here as chief romance correspondent. I think correspondent. going out a la carte is the way to go. And then flowers, yes or no? What? Yes, I got beautiful um, red and pink long stem roses, and they came yesterday to try to make me less tired and thinking about the fact that I have a newborn baby for two days. So Valentine's Day can go longer. Um, so they were a Sunday morning treat brought to me in bed. No, oh, like water oh, my word. So that's but, very, very well done by your husband. Yeah, he's good at that for sure. Okay. All right. So that you know what? I'm satisfied with this answer. Roses, uh, dinner out, but not the prefix menu. That all sounds good. Jesse, let's turn to something far darker, which is the situation okay. – in Ukraine. Uh, that's mm-hmm. that's quite a transition here. What, what a segue. Um, I've seen the memes out there and kind of people who are younger joking a little bit about World War Three. I think everyone understands that might be a little bit hyperbolic. But, I mean, a, a hot shooting war in yeah. Europe is a very real, you know, and present possibility, if not inevitability right now. And if the Russians decide to roll in, it's not going to be a bloodless war. There's going to be a lot of death. There's going to be a lot of misery. You'll probably have civilians killed. And the fact mm-hmm. that we're abandoning our embassy for now is is also frightening because it would suggest that we at least believe there's a credible chance that they're going to try to take over the country and overthrow the government, which is much more, would be much more than a minor incursion, to borrow a phrase. So, you know, I'm not necessarily anticipating the world – it's going to be consumed in a conflict, but this is not a small matter either. No, it's absolutely not. And I mean, I'm on maternity leave, so I'm obviously not consuming news at the same clip that I usually do. Um, but I actually have been 
kind of disappointed by the level of coverage that I've seen of this. And I know there are a lot of things going on and we did at the Super Bowl. I hope that we'll discuss the halftime show after this. Um, but this is very, very serious. And obviously President Biden has been on the phone with President Zelensky and with Vladimir Putin. Um, and Zelensky, it seems, was joking when he said that Wednesday was going to be the invasion. Um, probably not the best time for a joke, um, but needless to say. I think he say, posted it on social, and there are reports that Biden was also suggesting our intelligence could point to Wednesday. So it's kind of unclear how much of a joke that how was. How much but- of a joke it was. Yeah, that's also part of the the scary thing here. Like, it might be not a joke. It might not be a joke. And I was actually working in Yalta, which is in Crimea, uh, which uh, Vladimir Putin annexed illegally in 2014. I was there about two months before he took over. And it's quite amazing how stealth, even though the buildup of troops is happening, but how normal life goes on. And I see all these tweets and the coverage saying, oh, Kiev looks like normal tonight. But that doesn't mean anything with how efficient Russian troops are, how devious Vladimir Putin is, that tomorrow couldn't look a lot worse. You know, and it's very hard, at least from my vantage point, to know what to believe and to also understand exactly what the NATO response is going to be to this. And then obviously it raises a larger question of Ukraine's acceptance into the NATO community, which is something that Putin obviously does not want. Um, And I know that President Biden is speaking with Prime Minister Johnson later today, or maybe it's going on right now. Um, But I would like some more clarity uh, as to what our response is going to be versus, you know, these kind of fluffy, you know, there will be met with a, a strong response. Well, what does that mean? Because Putin only responds in in terms of like are you going to poison me back or are we going to have a a war because i think that he knows that that isn't a good idea for him if all of the west is united against him um but it's it's very disheartening and it's frightening meanwhile here at home some interesting polling out i just retweeted a poll that has president biden down in the mid-30s in approval rating Mm -hmm. and just in the 20s among independents there was a cnn poll that came out last week that had him at 58 percent disapproval. They asked people, is there one thing that you do approve of? And the majority answer was none of the above, which is not a great spot for him to be in. And then a second tranche sort of of that CNN data came out yesterday and they asked Democratic voters in 2024, would you like Joe Biden to be your nominee again or someone else? And a majority, 51 percent, said someone else. Only 41 percent of Democratic voters said And Democratic leaners said they want Joe Biden to be their standard bearer again in 2024. Some of that's just sort of self-perpetuating because he's unpopular. So they feel like he wouldn't win. And so they would want someone else. But if you're the incumbent and more than half of your party is sort of openly at least flirting with the idea of uh, going in another direction, that's probably not a great sign politically speaking. Of course, I sort of have been of the belief that he's not going to run again anyway. They then asked, of the people who would like someone else, do you have someone specific in mind? And the answer basically was no. I mean, it was a few people with 4% here, 2% there. The sitting vice president was at 2% in that poll. Uh, The Republican side of things was interesting. It was split evenly between yes Mm -hmm. to Trump or no, someone else. And of the people, half of them who said, no, we want someone else on the Republican side in 24, uh, Ron DeSantis had a pretty clear lead among that crew. There was no such... 
you know, no such leader as a potential alternative on the Democratic side. As a Democrat, I just wonder what you think this means within your party, the dynamics within the Democrats over these next couple of years, if Biden doesn't dramatically turn things around. Well, I think that there was for a lot of Democrats um, the assumption that Biden was running kind of for a caretaker government, right? Like that this was about getting us out of the Trump era, that he was the person who was best equipped to beat President Trump, but not necessarily that this was your forever person or even your top choice. There were a lot of people who made a utilitarian decision, and that's Democrats, a lot of moderate Republicans, people who are just not into Trump, and a majority of independents. Um, I'm not completely shocked by this. There hasn't been a lot of great news, um, starting, frankly, with the Afghanistan withdrawal. And I think that that had a much bigger impact on Biden's approval or the perception of his administration um, than they thought that it would. Um, yes. I'm not particularly worried because it's eight years from now. What I'm looking at is what's going on with the midterms. And if you don't have a president that is a help to you in the midterms, and we know that historically the party in power, you know, loses and loses badly. It happened um, to Obama. It happens to Trump, you know. It's just what goes on. But if you have to be very careful about which Democratic surrogates can go to which place um, and you have an administration that a lot of representatives on the ground may frankly be running away from, right, might be saying like, no, 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 this is not what we think about this. And you might see this mm -hmm. from, you know, a lot of the moderate Democrats, kind of like the Mikey Sherrills of the world, Abigail Spanberger, et cetera, um, that – there's a potential for, I think, Larry Sabato, who runs the crystal ball at um, University of Virginia, said that it could be like once in a century level losses is what he's seeing. Yeah, at this which has got to be very Obviously, difficult no for him to even say to because admit. he has yeah. sort of revealed himself as a big, big left winger wow. recently. Uh, Jesse, we only we have a few minutes left. What's that? I said I think that we all knew that. Larry Sabato leaned at least a little to the left. But, yeah, oh, yeah, my crystal Trump ball really. said that the guy's probably lived for quite some time, but not quite as fanatical and, and hyperbolic as he's gotten, which has been kind of disappointing to see. Regardless, Jesse, we only have a few minutes left, and you did mention you invoked the halftime show at the Super Bowl yesterday. We're going to get to that later because I, I promised Christine that we would, but you clearly have a strong POV on this, so I want to give you that opportunity to share your thoughts. My thoughts are all positive. Um, it was such fun. I thought I thought the set was incredible. Apparently, Dr. Dre spent seven million dollars on it of his own money. Um, really? And I, yeah. So the Super Bowl, you know, they don't pay the halftime act, right? That's the thing that you pay to be able to have the largest audience. It gets up to like a hundred million, um, but. Usually it costs the people like, you know, a million dollars. And Dre really wanted to blow it out because he has an al a new album coming. And, you know, I'm, what, what an amazing celebration concert, right, of early iconic rap. And I love that they had Kendrick Lamar in there as a, you know, a newer face to all of this. Um, but I just thought it was wildly fun. I, you know, knew every word to every song. And it seemed like the fans were loving it. Like it must have been the most electric experience. Um, and I just, two enthusiastic thumbs up. It was great that that was the show for 
a Super Bowl in Inglewood. You have, you know, people who grew up, Snoop's from Long Beach, Dre is from Compton. Um, I, I just thought it was perfect on, on every level. I generally agree with almost everything that you said. I don't know the music as well as you do, but, you know, and I'll, and I'll mention this when we get into it with Christine later, and I am guessing that she liked it because she was so excited for this. I was less excited than she was. She definitely Then it started, it. and I just, it, it was transfixing. Like, it was just fantastic. Every song was a mega hit, and it was just beautifully executed, and it did seem very, very well-received not just across social media. There's always going to be people whining and complaining about stuff. I saw some hot takes on the right, some hot takes on the left. Mostly people were like, okay, that was cool, even if it's not necessarily their thing. Right. And to your point, Jesse, the, the the energy inside the stadium, the crowd, really seemed to be responding. So I mean, it was cool. It was almost like the definition of cool. Yeah. I, I would very much say that it was. And, I mean, there have been a lot of interesting pieces today about, you know, how this is the first time that rap, um, even though it's such a seminal music genre for the country, has been the featured element of the Super Bowl show. And, I, and you know, and I know there's a lot of, oh, this is the best show ever. What about Prince? And I loved Prince's Super Bowl show. Um, but our yeah. great friend Kennedy, I think, put it well where she said, you know, Prince would – would definitely be a fan of this or he'd be insanely jealous. And I felt that that was a, a fair, a fair analysis of what was a really happy okay. and fun event also in a, in a pretty boring game, which made a difference. I mean, too. although, I mean, it was dramatic until the end, right? It could have gone either way in the last few minutes. And as a fan, that's kind of what you want to see, but a terrific halftime show, a point of agreement. We'll leave it there with Jesse Tarloff, our chief Romance correspondent here on this Valentine's Day, also chief motherhood correspondent. She also happens to co-host The Five and a few other things that are clearly less important on her resume. Jesse, always appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks, guys. Have a great dinner tonight. We'll be right back. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. I'm Guy Benson. We are back. There's some breaking news here. So a Fox News alert. This is coming in to Fox moments ago. The John Durham probe that we discussed earlier with Molly Hemingway has accelerated. So we've heard about expansions of this probe into the origins of the Russia investigation and those accusations against former President Trump. That probe has accelerated. And I guess it's not surprising, given the development, the revelations over the weekend about some of the spying on internet traffic. They're spying on President Trump, or they were, while he was president. And this was someone attached to this Democratic lawyer, and the strings were being pulled and the bills were being paid by the Clinton campaign, something that the Democratic lawyer concealed, and that's part of the reason he was indicted. Sussman is his name. So I guess based on that, we have this expansion and this acceleration of the Durham probe. It's a story that we are following here there's also another development today on a totally separate note. We'll Fox News alert into this one as well. We've been following this very closely for more than a week. Another victory for Glenn Youngkin in Virginia. We told you last week that there was this bipartisan vote in the state Senate to advance the bill on schools and optional masking and also requiring in-person instruction for the days to count. We told you last week 
that it had to go to the Republican-controlled assembly in order to get to the governor's desk. And earlier today, that bill passed, as expected, out of the Republican chamber, the lower chamber in Virginia, in Richmond. And the bill has been delivered to Governor Yunkin. He's signing it and he's sending it back for this emergency measure, which has to go through both houses again, to have it be implemented immediately. That is expected to occur. That would be a huge win, not just for Yunkin, but for parents and especially for the children of Virginia. In the lower house in Virginia, it was an exactly party line vote. Every single Democrat voted no. Elections have consequences. It's the Guy Benson Show. You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson. Welcome back to the Guy Benson Show. I saw this piece written by a woman named Jennifer Say, a name that you might recognize, a powerful essay published on Barry Weiss's Substack. Barry Weiss, of course, for the unfamiliar, was at the Wall Street Journal, then at the New York Times as an editor. She resigned from the Times and has been fighting against sort of woke excess ever since and doing it quite successfully. We respect her a lot, even though we disagree on many things. She gives a platform to people who are being wronged by these identity-obsessed, politically correct, hardcore progressive rules, effectively. And she amplifies their stories, which I think is a really good public service. And this one is entitled, Yesterday I Was Levi's Brand President. I quit so I could be free. The subhead from Jennifer Say in this essay on Barry Weiss's Substack is, I turned down $1 million in severance in exchange for my voice. So whenever you see someone turning down a million dollars, at least in my book, it piques my curiosity. Why would someone do that? Well, here's the story from Jennifer Say. It begins like this. When I traveled to Moscow in 1986, I brought 10 pairs of Levi's 501s in my bag. I was a 17-year-old gymnast, the reigning national champion, and I was going to the Soviet Union to compete in the Goodwill Games, a rogue Olympics-level competition orchestrated by CNN founder Ted Turner while the Soviet Union and the United States were boycotting each other. The genes were for bartering. The Russians' leotards represented tautness, prestige, discipline, but they clamored for my denim and all that it represented, American ruggedness, freedom, individualism. I loved wearing Levi's. I'd worn them as long as I could remember. But if you had told me back then that I'd one day become the president of the brand, I wouldn't have believed you. If you told me that after achieving all that, after spending almost my entire career at one company, that I would resign from it, I'd think you were really crazy. Today, she writes, I'm doing just that. Why? Because after all these years, the company I love has lost sight of the values that made people everywhere, including those gymnasts in the former Soviet Union, want to wear Levi's. So Jennifer Say goes through and outlines some of her personal history. Then she gets to the current era and the pandemic times. She writes, early on in the pandemic, I publicly questioned whether schools had to be shut down. 
This didn't seem at all controversial to me. I felt and still do that the draconian policies would cause the most harm to those least at risk. And the burden would fall heaviest on disadvantaged kids in public schools who need the safety and routine of school the most. I wrote op-eds, she says, appeared on local news shows, attended meetings with the mayor's office. This was in Northern California, San Francisco, organized rallies, pleaded on social media to get the schools open. I was condemned for speaking out. This time I was called a racist. A strange accusation, given that I have two black sons, a eugenicist, and a QAnon conspiracy theorist. In the summer of 2020, I finally got the call. You know, when you speak, you speak on behalf of the company, our head of corporate communications told me, urging me to pipe down. I responded, my title is not in my Twitter bio. I'm speaking as a public school mom of four kids. But the calls kept coming from legal, from HR, from a board member. And finally, from my boss, the CEO of the company. I explained why I felt so strongly about the issue, citing data on the safety of schools and the harms caused by virtual learning. While they didn't try to muzzle me outright, I was told repeatedly to think about what I was saying. Meantime, colleagues posted nonstop about the need to oust Trump in the November election. I also shared my support for Elizabeth Warren in the Democratic primary, and my great sadness about the racially instigated murders of Ahmad Arbery and George Floyd. No one at the company objected to any of that. I will just pause briefly. This is an essay written by Jennifer Say, published by Barry Weiss. She was a high-ranking executive at Levi's, the iconic American jeans company. And I think this little example that she just gave, how much grief she got internally for just speaking out about the need for schools to be open during the pandemic, citing data. It was just a barrage of criticism, both internal and public, when she did that. But when other colleagues and she were posting about other political matters, elections, race, all this stuff, as long as they were posting from a leftist perspective or a progressive perspective, that was all fine. No problem at all. And this woman, again, as you can tell from what she just wrote, is not a right winger. This is someone who is supporting Elizabeth Warren for president. This is not a conservative person. But she looked at the data. She understood what was at stake for kids. And she decided to plant her feet and fight on that issue. And that issue could not be tolerated, as you'll soon discover here. All the other activism Posting and commenting constantly about Donald Trump, that was all fine, if not encouraged. But this, this was a bridge too far. She goes on. Then in October of 2020, when it was clear public schools were not going to open that fall, I proposed to the company leadership that we weigh in on the topic of school closures in our city, San Francisco. We often take a stand on political issues that impact our employees. We've spoken out on gay rights, voting rights, gun safety, and more. Again, these are all approved topics from the approved vantage point. The response this time, she writes, was different. Quote, we don't weigh in on hyper-local issues like this, I was told. By the way, it wasn't hyper-local. This same play was unfolding across the country, particularly in blue cities. Kids in red states were going to school, no problem, no masks, learning, not getting left behind. Not nearly as much, whereas kids in cities and states run by Democrats 
were being impacted by this in a very harmful way. And even though all the predicted doom, gloom, death, misery didn't materialize in those red states as predicted by the so-called experts and the pundit class, a lot of those schools remained closed for the entire school year anyway, which is inexcusable, totally indefensible. And a lot of those same people are the ones clinging to this dead-end mask mandate stuff in schools today. So this woman, who again is high up at Levi's, is suggesting, hey, maybe we should take a stand on behalf of kids. And all of a sudden there's a political issue that, oh, it's a little too local. We're not going to go there. She writes, I refuse to stop talking. I kept calling out hypocritical and unproven policies. I met with the mayor's office and eventually uprooted my entire life in California. I'd lived there for over 30 years and moved my family to Denver so my kindergartner could finally experience real school. So she and her family were some of the many who fled the state of California because of their totally crazy policies. She writes, national media picked up on our story, and I was asked to go on Laura Ingram's show on Fox News. That appearance, writes Jennifer Say, was the last straw. The comments from Levi's employees picked up. This is the mob within companies, sort of these left-wing wokesters, often on the young side, who just batter leadership with complaints and grievances and claims that violence is being done to them because someone has a, a view that they disagree with. That's happening at the Blue Jeans Company as well. They accused her of being anti-science. She said the comments were about me being anti-fat, parentheses. I retweeted a study showing a correlation between obesity and poor health outcomes, which, of course, is true. That's scientific. That was deemed, what, fat shaming? That you just uh, All the different ways that you can be aggrieved and offended, they brought all of these to bear to come after this woman. She was accused of being anti-trans, of course. Why? She tweeted that we shouldn't ditch Mother's Day for birthing people's day because it left out adoptive and stepmoms. So she's actually looking more holistically at the concept of motherhood, but because she wants to defend the word mother and the concept of motherhood, that is deemed by these psychos anti-trans. This is what happens, and we're seeing with Joe Rogan. When the woke team has decided that you must be crushed, they will bring anything to bear. It's not just whatever the issue that they claim to be upset about, in this case that she was being anti-science, even though she was being pro-science. They were the anti-science ones. They were the anti-children ones. But in their version of science, politicized science, superstitious science, capital S science, she was the enemy. So they were coming after her on that front and then just finding other examples of wrong think on fat shaming, on Supposed transphobia. Again, this is an Elizabeth Warren supporting progressive. No one is immune when the mob decides to turn on you. She was told that she was a racist because San Francisco's public school system was filled with black and brown kids. And apparently, I didn't care if they died. Right? These sound familiar, don't they? These arguments. They also castigated me, she writes, for my husband's COVID views. As if I, his wife, 
who are responsible for the things he said on social media. That's the other thing that they do. Guilt by association. Demanding that people denounce their own spouses, their own siblings. Meantime, the head of diversity, equity, and inclusion at the Blue Jeans Company, Levi's, asked that I do an apology tour. I was told the main complaint against me was that I was, quote, not a friend of the black community at Levi's. I was told to say that, quote, I am an imperfect ally. I refused. And she gives a few reasons why, her actual actions in her life, which all of a sudden didn't matter. Everything that she had done, all the goodwill just evaporates in an instant because she's on the wrong side of the mob and therefore the knives are out and destruction must ensue. This is how they operate. This is a cancel culture mob playing out in a predictable way and it will continue to play out, by the way, until people say no. To the shame of Levi's, they didn't say no. But this woman did, Jennifer Say, who I didn't really know very much about at all until I read this piece today. And I will say that my respect for her skyrocketed. I mean, it takes guts. She writes, in the fall of 2021, so just a few months ago, during a dinner with the CEO, I was told that I was on track to become the next CEO of Levi's. Stock price had doubled under my leadership, and revenue had returned to pre-pandemic levels. The only thing standing in my way, he said, was me. All I had to do was stop talking about the school thing. Think about this. The litmus test for her was insisting in a correct pro-science way that kids not be locked out of their schools for absolutely no reason, based on the data. That, because it was against the left-wing orthodoxy of the day, that explicitly was cited to her as an obstacle to becoming CEO of this company, which I remind you is a blue jeans company. Every day, she writes, a dossier of my tweets and my online interactions were sent to the CEO by the head of corporate communications. This is really creepy stuff. Oh, they've got problematic Jennifer. Here she goes again talking about how kids should be in school. Let's keep tabs on everything that she's saying publicly and report it up to the principal's office every day. It's so creepy. And then the axe falls, and this million-dollar bribe is proffered. We will get to what happened next when we return. It's Jennifer Say's essay at Barry Weiss's Substack about how she is out at Levi's because she believed that kids should be in school during COVID. The sad but also in some ways inspirational conclusion coming up. Guy Benson will be right back. We're back. It's the Guy Benson Show. We're reading from Jennifer Say telling the very sad story of being forced out by the woke mob because she was right about schools and COVID. And here is the denouement. In the last month, the CEO told me it was, quote, untenable. For me to stay at Levi's. I was offered a $1 million severance package, but I knew I'd have to sign a non-disclosure agreement about why I'd been pushed out. Jennifer Say writes, the money would be very nice, but I just can't do it. Sorry, Levi's. I never set out to be a contrarian. I don't like to pick a fight. I love Levi's and its place in the American heritage as a purveyor of sturdy pants for hardworking, daring people who moved west and dreamed of gold buried in the dirt. 
the red tag on the back pocket of the jeans I handed over to those Russian girls used to be shorthand for what was good and right about this country. And when I think back about my trip to Moscow so many decades ago, I still get a little choked up. But the corporation doesn't believe in that now. It's trapped trying to please the mob and silencing any dissent within the organization. In this, it is like so many other American companies held hostage by intolerant ideologues who do not believe in genuine inclusion or diversity. In my more than two decades at the company, says Jennifer Say, I took my role as manager most seriously. I helped mentor and guide promising young employees who went on to become executives. In the end, no one stood with me. Not one person publicly said they agreed with me or even that they didn't agree with me, but supported my right to say what I believe anyway. I like to think that many of my now former colleagues know that this is wrong. I like to think that they stayed silent because they feared losing their standing at work or incurring the wrath of the mob. I hope in time they'll acknowledge as much. I'll always wear my old 501s, but today I'm trading in my job at Levi's. In return, I get to keep my voice. Jennifer Say, writing today on the substack of Barry Weiss. If this were an outlier, if this were an unfamiliar story with unfamiliar dynamics, it might be a curiosity. It's not. It is very familiar. It is how the left-wing cancel culture movement in this country operates, how it works through fear, intolerance, and ostracizing. Good for this woman, Jennifer Say, for doing what she did on behalf of kids. She was right. She was right all along. And then for turning down a million dollars to buy her silence. She wanted to tell her story. She wanted this to be out there. What a disgrace of the people that she helped and mentored throughout her multi-decade career. Not a single one of them had the guts to stand up for her. And this type of thing is playing out time after time after time. When do we say no? When do we say enough? When do we say stop? When do the leaders finally have the courage to stand up to these people? I keep waiting for the tipping point. I really do. Sometimes you feel like, okay, maybe this is it. Nope, not yet. And it might be a while. Because tolerance and courage are both in short supply right now, which is exactly how the mob wants it. That's how they win. That's their playbook. Jennifer Say has a new fan here at The Guy Benson Show. If you want to read her whole essay, as I mentioned, it's at Barry Weiss's Substack. Final hour of The Guy Benson Show coming right up. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back with Brian Kilmeade after this. It's 5 o'clock in the most powerful city in the world, Washington, D.C. It's time for The Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Finland's most popular alcoholic beverage has come to America. Visit thelongdrink.com. And now, here's your host, Guy Benson. It's the Monday Happy Hour on The Guy Benson Show. I'm Guy Benson. Thank you for listening. Monday through Friday, 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern, right here. If you miss any of it, there's a podcast for that. It is free. It is on demand around the clock. GuyBensonShow.com. GuyBensonShow.com. 
Tonight in the 6 p.m. hour Eastern Time, I'll be on Special Report. Part of the panel this evening, Juan Williams, Kim Strassel will be there with Brett Bayer. Right around 645 Eastern, Fox News Channel. Hope you will tune in. And this hour here on the radio side, sponsored as always by the Finnish Long Drink, which is so good. Maybe a delicious, refreshing beverage. Maybe to watch the Super Bowl, for example. Maybe have in the background some pizza or what have you. The Long Drink is expanding, and they're about to really expand big time. Even more so across the country. More to come on that. In the meantime, thelongdrink.com is their website. Thelongdrink.com. You can find out where they're sold so far near you. You can also order online. Please drink responsibly. 21 plus only. With us now is our colleague here at Fox News Radio. It's Brian Kilmeade, host of the Brian Kilmeade Show. He's also co-host of Fox and Friends every morning on FNC, author of multiple books, most recently The President and the Freedom Fighter, Abraham Lincoln, Frederick Douglass, and their battle to save America, and most recently the biggest news in Kilmeade world is the addition of his own show on weekends, Saturday evenings at 8 p.m. Eastern, it's One Nation with Brian Kilmeade. Brian, you are a busy man. Congratulations on the new show. I appreciate it. I'll be looking forward to watching you tonight on Special Report. I want to ask you, before we get to you know Super Bowl stuff and news of the day, give us the elevator pitch on One Nation with Brian Kilmeade. You are obviously extremely familiar to the Fox audience. Three hours every morning with your colleagues on the TV side. Then you've got the three-hour show here on Fox News Radio. The Saturday night show at 8 p.m. is different. This is sort of your solo gig on the TV side. It's brand new. It's just started in the last couple of weeks. What can people expect when they tune in? Well, I mean, I'm trying to get away from the predictable uh, predictable pundit inside Washington political talk, and I'm trying to, number one, inject fun and also talk about things that affect the country, not a party. So I'm trying to look at the big picture. I'm looking at what, the, what happened with the Uyghurs. We, we talked to a woman that escaped from there. I'm looking for the first block. I'm going to be talking about things that matters most or the thing that matters most. I'm going to have a Democrat and Republican uh, each and every week on one way or shape or form. Going to do a news duel. Where we're going to get through all those myriad of, you know how these, uh, these stories you like, but you can't possibly get in even though we have three hours on the radio. I try to blow through those news duel stories with another familiar face uh, like yourself, for example, and a very, someone with a very similar bill, Tyrus, uh, over uh, <laughs> last weekend. And I did it with uh, Carly Shimkus, but she's got that UG go, and it's tough to deal with that. I don't know if I could do that again. <laughs> I probably won't call on her. But, you know, we do, do some of that. And the things that matter most, and also try to give a perspective about what's going on. For example, I had Jay Glazer on to talk about football. Okay, great. But we also talked about the thing that a lot of guys are dealing with that he comes across with UFC and football, and that's depression. No one talks about it. A lot of it comes with head injuries. Some comes from the military injuries. And a lot of it you're born with. So I'm like, no problem. Normally on a, on a show like ours, move it, talk about the issues, and you got to move. But I'm able to dig in on stuff like that. So I'm trying to give people, because our people at Fox watch all the time. So I'm thinking to myself, how do I get that person that loves Fox, but is hearing a lot of the same stuff from different people, how do I give a different twist? That's what I try to do. And that is One Nation with Brian Kilmeade, Saturdays at 8 Eastern, Fox News Channel, in addition to all the other Kilmeade properties around Fox World. So, Brian, among other things, you're a big sports guy. You've sort of had that role at Fox News for many years at this point. So, of course, you're going to be watching the Super Bowl with great interest. Let's start with the game itself. Another good game. Is this, do you think, the best 
NFL playoff season, the postseason that you've ever seen? Because, oh, no, I mean, no almost about every it. game was yeah. amazing. No doubt about it. But I think a lot of it was unexpected. I mean, you expect the Chiefs and Bucks to survive. They didn't. Uh, they lost uh, from two teams that had not been there before, well, at least under this leadership, under these quarterbacks. So, you know, we had a bit of a surprise. I mean, who thought Aaron Rodgers was out in the first round? Who thought that Tom Brady was going to last two rounds? I thought, man, you know, he's healthier than he was a year ago. He was playing with a knee, knee injury we didn't know about. And, of course, when it comes down to it, he did make a big comeback. He did come all the way back from halftime, but end up uh, he doesn't play defense. And he was unable to uh, keep his key, uh, you know, keep the Rams out. So I, I look back, and I'm a little surprised by that, you know, that, that we're, we were seeing what we saw. I never in a million years thought Cincinnati was going to be in the Super Bowl, period, as much as I love their quarterback. I mean, they're a team that has six scouts, has no indoor facility, is famous for when people ask for money, they just cut them. And now after 30 years and two seasons, uh, they're, they're back in the Super Bowl with more promise than the team that beat them. Yeah, I mean, and then looking all the way back to the divisional round, then the conference championships, then the Super Bowl, you had seven straight games that were decided within the last two minutes, like inside the two-minute warning. Right. That is high, high entertainment. And from a fan's perspective, my team was awful, so they were nowhere near the playoffs. Just as the casual fan, you can't ask for any more than that. Just drama up and down the dial in the early rounds, and then NBC had a great Super Bowl last night. And it seemed for a while there, there were some big mistakes that were made early in the second half by the Rams. And, like, my gosh, could the Bengals catch lightning in a bottle again and make it happen? But ultimately, their big Achilles heel, the offensive line, is what doomed them. The last play of the game, right? There was a guy wide open, but Burrow couldn't get it to him because the pressure was too much. And that's how they ended up losing to the Rams and you got the sense like if the Rams weren't going to win it this year, it might may not be a, you know a while, or it might be a while because they were all in on this season and that gamble paid off for this year. It won't next year. When they probably uh, I, I hear their coach is moving on. I mean ESPN has a huge contract waiting for him. Fox would bid for him. He obviously is very comfortable in front of the camera. Good looking guy. Youngest coach ever, thirty, and at thirty six, the youngest to ever win a Super Bowl. There's a huge there's huge rumors he's out. So, and a lot of people say that he understands what's going to happen to the cap. They traded away their, their first-round draft picks. Not only get great players, they couldn't afford to sign them under their current cap situation. But maybe it's worth in the big picture. I mean, certainly uh, their owner's not afraid to lose some money, and he's not going to in Kroenke. So, that should be interesting to see. Uh, a couple of things that stand out. Number one, about football, just watching Burroughs so much over the last five games and being so impressed. I've never seen a guy with a more accurate arm and more cool under pressure. However, he holds on to it too long. He does not feel pressure well. Some of those sacks were not the line's fault. Even on yeah, that final on game, you've got to figure they know that if he's going to pass, I mean, you've got to figure that he's going to be pressured. The great quarterbacks, the, the Bradys, the Montanas, the Youngs, I think the Bradshaws, the Tarkingtons, Understand where that pressure is going to come from. After all, it's it's three and three quarter quarters. Or in the books, you know the steam. I was surprised. And he they've let got like a spidey like sense. That. Like the really great ones have a spidey sense of like I got to get rid of this thing Rogers, right now. Rogers, for example, he yeah, always Burrow, he never gets look, caught. He's so young. He's what twenty five. He's got time to maybe start developing that. Yeah. And what he's already accomplished is just ridiculous. Brian, what did you think? And my guest here is Brian Kilmeade. What do you think of this controversy about the refs and the flags at the end of the game? I thought one of those calls was really, really questionable, the defensive holding, which was somewhat consequential. There were some other penalties that came just after that. People were saying, oh, they've got it in for the Bengals. They want the Rams to score here. But 
hey, the Bengals scored a touchdown on a play that the refs totally missed on a face mask on the other side. To me, some of those complaints feel more like grousing because I don't think they ultimately decided the game. Yeah, I, I would say this. Just be consistent. These refs are supposedly the best. So I'm not sure if they ever made that adjustment to keeping teams together or just putting the best refs together because the way I understand it, and talking to referees, they really like to work with the same team. And instead of just picking the best umpires, you should keep the same team. I don't know what they ultimately decided on that, but they did miss the face mask. And, yep. and I don't know why they didn't maybe review that call. I thought that was review. A touchdown was reviewable. So I'm not sure that they got the message what happened there, but Jalen Ramsey clearly felt that something happened, but he's gotten beaten before. Uh, that's why he paid him a zillion dollars, and he brought the Brinks truck up to Jacksonville Jaguars, and they said, I have a better idea. We'll trade you. So yeah. uh, a couple of things. I, I think the refs, if they were just consistent, I would like to see less penalties at the end, not more. I would yeah, appreciate I that, and I just don't want to see them decide again, but I don't think they did. I mean, put it this way. Burroughs had, he had a, a minute 10, a uh, couple of timeouts, to get into field goal range with a field goal kicker that doesn't miss. And he wasn't able to do it. I mean, that's the story. I mean, we, we in life, we, we ask, ask the people in Trump world, things are unfair. you got to deal with that. that. Well, that call went against me. This call went against me. That touchdown against, uh, went against, uh, the, uh, went against the Rams, clearly. They, lo- they never would regain the lead until they finally took it uh, in their last possession. So you just got over. Life is about overcoming. Football, more than any other sport, is about overcoming. So I think the refs played a, a role, but nothing that was that they couldn't overcome. I mean, you had the ball with over a minute left with the best young quarterback in the league, who's already won four clutch games in a row, maybe even longer to, to surge into the playoffs. So uh, it was in the, it was in his hands. That's all you could ask. Do you agree with the MVP decision? I just don't know who else would have gotten it. I mean, who else would have gotten it if it not for Cooper Cup? Some people were saying the defensive player uh, for the Rams maybe could have gotten it, but I think Cup, to me, was easily one of the top choices, and he deserved it. I mean, game-winning touchdown catch, big touchdown catch earlier in the game as well. I think that was also people looking for some sort of controversy to gin up. I think it was a a relatively easy call uh, for the people who made that decision. Brian, after the game ended, I was watching some of the post-game coverage, and then NBC said, all right, stay tuned, the Olympics are on next. And I turned it off, not because I'm against the Olympics. I love the Olympics, especially the Winter Olympics. I've said it on the air before. And not because I'm angry, really, with NBC. But I'm just really unhappy with these Olympics being allowed to take place in China, given everything that's happened and what the Chinese government has done. I've explained my reasons why. So I have continued just not watching these winter games. I wonder what you make of that, how you've approached the Olympics this time around. And then I don't know if you saw the Wall Street Journal story, but there are some athletes from around the world that are competing for China, even though they're not Chinese. Like I saw Chris Chelios. His son is playing hockey for China. It just seems like a weird thing. It seems like the Russians are involved in some cheating. The Chinese are up to something again. It just it seems like some of the bad countries are up to bad things, even in sports. Well, a couple of things. It's a little like the World Cup in soccer, which I'm very familiar with. What happens is if you have some ancestry, if one of your parents is born in that country, you could do it or becomes a naturalized citizen, you can do it. So that makes him eligible. I don't know what kind of player he is. Usually when people do that in soccer, it's not good enough to make the U.S. team. This is the first time, and I don't know if Chelios' son is as good as he was, but maybe if he couldn't make the national team, and you go, you know, I, I kind of want to compete. I like to play for the Olympics. I'll go do it. I, I know some players that, that I know that go compete for Ireland when they can't make a national team. Like, can you believe that I can 
play against it. That's a different situation. What we saw with that uh, 18-year-old skier who just won a a gold that we trained from uh, up until the day the Olympics started, trained with all of our people, all our best instructors using our facilities. And because her mom's born in China, she gets to compete for China. Who knows how much money she made to do it. That is totally bizarre. It's it's a new Mm -hmm. phenomenon. But I would add this. Nobody competes for the Winter Games. Kazakhstan was the only other one to do it. So I'm not sure if they would have given it to Beijing anyway. These have become totally unaffordable. You have to pick two sites. If you want to save the Olympic Games, you have to pick two sites. Greece should be the summer and pick a Winter Games, and that's it. And we report for duty there. That becomes like yeah, the Just UN. have the Olympics in the same exactly. place every yeah. four years? Oh, that's interesting. That's the way so we do So you stop it. all the bidding stuff. Because it's so important for these countries to play against each other, for us to play and compete. And I, I just feel bad for the winter athletes because, they're, you know, you practice luge. You don't do it to get girls and be famous. You do it because you <laughs> love to compete. And that's pure sports, the way we used to compete before money got involved and when the Olympics was pure amateur. Like, look at these great athletes. Too bad they're making $100 a year. Can you imagine if they could do it full time like the Russians could, the Soviets could? Now we're at a point where this is their moment. So I don't want to take it away from him because the IOC is in bed with China again. And just like they're letting this 15-year-old keep or compete for a gold medal, even though she failed a drug test because they don't want to make Russian. her feel bad, the Russian, they make her feel bad. What about the other people that are not going to get the gold because she cheated and won? So I'm, that's the IOC again, a corrupt organization. We should demand some standards. FIFA got gutted. That's the world soccer body. They totally got paid off in order to not give America the World Cup. That's why Qatar has it. They had no facilities. They had to move the World Cup. But they paid off the officials. The Olympics has got to get cleaned up and gutted, too. Yeah. And I'm not sure if I'm on board for the, you know, two locations only. But maybe you have a rotation. Like, pick three summer, three winter, and you just rotate forever. The ones that have, you know, the best situation, the best setup, uh, maybe something along those lines. I could be persuaded because whatever the model is right now, it does seem to be broken in a lot of ways for reasons, some of them that you just mentioned there. Brian Kilmeade, host of the Brian Kilmeade Show right here on Fox News Radio, many of these same stations. Also, you see him every morning on Fox and Friends, of course, Fox News Channel with his colleagues, Ainsley and Steve. And then on Saturday nights, 8 p.m. Eastern, it's his brand new show on Fox News one Nation with Brian Kilmeade. Brian, appreciate you stopping by. Uh, go get him. Thanks so much, Guy. Congratulations on the success. I'll watch you tonight. You bet. Thanks, Brian. It's Brian Kilmeade on the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, which continues right after this. The Guy Benson Show. More next. It's the Happy Hour on the Guy Benson Show. If that was too much football talk in the last segment for your taste, don't worry. We'll get to the ads. We'll get to the halftime show in the home stretch later this hour. In the meantime, it is Valentine's Day. So happy Valentine's Day to all of those who celebrate. I barely celebrate. I think it's a made-up holiday, like a commercial thing to bilk you out of money. But there's a romantic side to it, so I sort of participate under protest to some extent. We're going to cook tonight at the house. We were thinking about going out, but I was just in Atlanta for days eating out for every meal. And then later this week, I'm going to Louisiana for an event, so I'll be eating out even more. And it just seemed nice to have a home-cooked meal. So that's what we're going to do at the house this evening. We were talking to Dan earlier on the planning call. He said he's got reservations tonight with his girlfriend, which seems like a good move. But Christine was none too pleased about that development, not because she thinks that 
Dan is doing the wrong thing, but it raised a grievance for producer Christine. Christine, what is your grievance? No way, and I'm sorry to do this, honey, but no way would Bobby ever, ever take me out on Valentine's night. He would complain that they hijacked the prices, the menu's not the same, he doesn't want heart-shaped ravioli. It would be a whole nightmare. I don't know, if, even when we were dating, I don't think he's ever taken me out on but Valentine's Even when you were dating, because that's when you're, you're sort of like on your best behavior, like trying to impress someone. No. No, I mean, I guess I was more on my best behavior. <laughs> we yeah, all know he why. He was the one who got bamboozled. <laughs> and look, I actually give him credit. He's not like, you know, putting on the Ritz when you're dating. Then you get married, and all of a sudden he's like, no, we're not doing this anymore. We're not doing that anymore. He was open and honest, I guess, about expectations management, which I think is a plus. Yes, Bobby was always very low-key about all of that stuff. So I kind of knew you know, what I was getting into. But I, I made Valentine's Day special for Megan. She woke up. I had balloons on the door. And then, like, I had little hearts that I cut out that brought her downstairs. And then she had a present from Rosie. And then she had a bag full of, you know, presents for Mommy and Daddy and some heart-shaped wow. food. Yeah, that's I, a lot. I, I mean, I feel like that's a little bit of, uh, you know, overkill. She's eight. Uh, Valentine's. It's not Christmas, Christine. Just, I, I'm between that and Bobby's approach, I'm sort of leaning Bobby on this one. Yeah, he, he looked we'll at all Maybe this. he'll surprise you tonight. Maybe he'll surprise you tonight, and you'll have something to tell us tomorrow. Or you'll just do a delayed Valentine's Day celebration. Uh, perhaps we'll get an after-action report within reason on the show tomorrow. It's the Guy Benson Show. We'll be right back. It's the happy hour. Stay tuned. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. We return to the happy hour on the Guy Benson Show. Earlier in today's program, we welcome back Molly Hemingway, recently named as the editor-in-chief at The Federalist. And, of course, she's a Fox News contributor. Here's part of my conversation with our colleague Molly Hemingway. Let's start with this story and what the special counsel has put forward in legal documents What did we learn over the weekend? Please put this into context because I think a lot of people, their heads are just sort of swimming with all the Russia stuff over the last five years. And we just need to make this bite-sized and digestible. To my eyes, this seems like a pretty big deal. Yeah, as someone who has covered the Russia collusion hoax for years, it reminds me of that meme uh, from It's Always Sunny, where the guy has, you know, strings attached from, you know, connecting different things that are and of, of a very complex scenario. Yes. That's definitely yes. how this can be. But what was interesting about what we learned this weekend was that we already knew that the Trump campaign had been spied on. That's well established in previous court documents, inspector general reports and the like. What we found out this weekend is that the surveillance was a new kind of surveillance that we learned about and that it took place while President Trump was in the White House. And it was not just of the executive office of the president, but it was also of Trump Tower. And the type of surveillance was basically someone exploited the fact that they had access to very sensitive information coming out of the White House and Trump Tower, which is Internet traffic. um, And they exploited their access to that in order to take advantage of that information and try to set it up as if this information suggested that the collusion between Russia and Trump was a real thing. But it's really what's interesting is the surveillance was continuing into the presidency, and it was a new kind of surveillance that we hadn't already known about. 
So they were not only tracking what Trump was looking at online before he was president at other locations, but also the Internet traffic in the executive office of the president after he was elected and inaugurated. They were continuing to look at this data. Who was doing this? Like, who were the people doing the spying here? And just, again, to, to, to clarify, the stuff that we knew about already from national security letters and FISA warrants involved, yes, email communications of Trump campaign officials, confidential human assets that were placed against various uh, campaign officials, you know, traditional spy craft that you might think of. What, what was happening here was that a government contractor who had access, again, to sensitive, meaning private information of Internet traffic, you know, what, what sites were being um, located or what kind Access. of uh, information was being sought, that they exploited that for the Clintons, for the Clinton-related officials. Now, we know already that Hillary Clinton's campaign secretly orchestrated the Russia collusion hoax, secretly bought and paid for the dossier. But this really refers to something that didn't get a ton of attention. She really tried to make it be something that got a lot of attention. But one of her October surprises was about um, an allegation that Trump was secretly communicating with Russia through private servers. And this all relates to that, except that what we've learned is this continued into his time at the White House, um, that they were monitoring this, and it was Clinton-allied people. But then they tried to get the CIA to pick it up, just like they, they tried and succeeded in getting the Department of Justice to pick up their fake dossier. So they were, they were doing, um, you know, we might think of as traditional uh, spying on a campaign, but they were using government resources both to secure the information, but then also to weaponize it. So what are the implications of these new developments? Because it seems like a lot of people in the mainstream press, let's just put this as charitably as possible. Let's just say that they are taking a wait-and-see approach to this. (laughs) Um, If it is borne out by the investigation as it continues, because we're getting just little drips from Durham, Seems like every few months we're getting something from him. He's clearly on the case. It's been very thorough. He's been at it now for, what, two years? I mean, he's he's really been going at his own pace, and there was some griping for a while that he wasn't maybe doing anything. Seems like he's actually looking into quite a lot here. And the press, as I alluded to in our opening, introducing you, Molly, they could not get enough of breathless coverage of everything Russia, this collusion accusation or narrative that hung over the Trump presidency for years, they they drove that bus. They couldn't get enough of it. And then when it looks like some of the origins of that whole hullabaloo were manufactured or illegitimate, the coverage of that component has been muted or just totally swept under the rug. That seems to be what we're witnessing at least thus far on this new development. So I guess it's a two-part question, what the implications are of what we seem to be learning here, and then the media coverage aspect. Right. And I would just point out, they like to characterize themselves as mainstream media. They're really neither. They have 
hardcore agendas and they don't report the news. You alluded to this with their coverage of the Russia collusion hoax. They would take made-up stories sourced to anonymous officials who had no substantiation to them or nothing that should merit uh, any journalistic standard. They would run wild with those for days, for weeks, for months, for years. And here we have an actual court filing related to an actual indictment, and they're saying, oh, we have to take a wait-and-see approach. It's exactly the opposite of how it should be. But the reason why they're not covering it is because they are completely complicit in the collusion hoax. They are the ones who made this um, who made this story go wild. They are the ones who caused so much damage to the country. For them to cover it would mean to take some responsibility for it. So they're only going to cover it up as they have been engaged in such cover-ups cover for some time. But the implications, I think, are so broad. What we saw in the, in the leading up to 2016 and, and then in the years after was a refusal of the establishment, and that includes the corporate media, to accept the results of a free and fair election. They meddled in the election, then they refused to accept that Donald Trump was elected. And to this date, almost nobody has been held accountable. Even the FBI lawyer who falsified evidence in order to go after the Trump campaign and secure a, a, a FISA warrant on the campaign, he's gotten his law license back. I mean, there's really been no accountability. And until there's accountability, the country cannot recover. And uh, this is this is something where the establishment, the regime, wants no one to be held accountable, and they might have the power to, to make sure it happens. But Durham, lonely though he may be, is making that a little bit more difficult. Are you encouraged by the progress you're seeing from him? I, I mean, I think it's so slow. You think about all the elections that have been affected by Hillary Clinton's Russia collusion hoax. It's 2016. 2018, the midterms were profoundly affected by this lie that Trump had stolen the election in 2016. That full interview with Molly Hemingway and today's entire show, available online for free, part of the podcast, GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcasts.com, or wherever you get your podcast. That's on demand, no charge to you, every day. When we come back, the home stretch, as promised, we will talk about the Super Bowl, but not the game. We did that with Brian. We will move on to the other stuff that everyone can talk about. TV commercials, halftime show, various controversies. It's all next. For the full interview and more, go to GuyBensonShow.com. Home stretch on the Guy Benson Show on this Monday after the Super Bowl from our studios, the Tony Snow Studio in Washington, D.C. Thank you for listening. GuyBensonShow.com podcast free every day. Well, there was a lot of anticipation, as there is every year, for the Super Bowl game itself, which we talked about a bit earlier with Brian Kilmeade, but also the TV commercials, where people fork over millions of dollars, corporations and various entities, to promote their products or promote their movies or what have you. And sometimes there are memorable commercials. Sometimes they are kind of cringy. I would say on the whole... My impression of the commercials last night, sort of, eh, C minus, maybe worse. It was not a great bumper crop of Super Bowl ads, in my opinion. Some good ones. And then the halftime show. A lot of people were very interested to see this year's halftime show, which was an array of hip-hop and rap artists. And this was somewhat controversial to some people, 
I'm not a huge fan of the genre. I'm not a huge fan of any of the people that were on stage. But I was looking forward to seeing how they did it. I was looking forward to see how many of the songs I actually knew. Not by heart, but knew of or recognized. And we'll get to that in a second. But first, let's quickly start with the ads. Christine, did you think the ads were good? I thought overall they weren't that terrific. I actually really enjoyed the ads. I'm I'm kind of surprised that you gave such a low grade. Was there one or two that stick out maybe? Oh, yeah. or... uh, the Sopranos one with Meadow and AJ? Come on. You didn't love that one? I guess I was just tired of seeing car commercials only for electric cars. Like, does anyone use gas in their car anymore? Most of us do. So I just sort of, I don't know. I was over it. I did see the ad. I knew, of course, it was the Sopranos opening, even though I've never seen the Sopranos itself. When I was in high school, my broadcast partner, Dan Duva, and I edited together our own version of that Sopranos open with that song. We edited it, and it was us driving from our high school to the hockey arena where the high school team played, and we would play that before our hockey broadcasts on cable access. It was really good. I tweeted it. Did you see it on YouTube? I didn't. I'm sorry. I'm right now just shaded. Did I know this about you, that you've never seen The Sopranos? I have not. My brother's been on my case to go see it, and he recommends a lot of good shows, right? Like he recommended Arrested Development, which turned into my favorite comedy of all time. He recommended The Wire, which I think is my favorite drama of all time. And he says, you've really got to watch The Sopranos. I'll get around to it. It's absolutely on my list. But I had watched the opening credits and Dan and I did our own sort of spoof of it. And I think the editing was good. You should go and watch it. I tweeted it last night. It's on YouTube. It was a fun project. So that commercial at least evoked that memory. And Dan and I were texting about it. But it didn't do much for me. Didn't get you that ex- what about the Pete Davidson Mayo commercial? I thought that was hysterical. Oh, I missed that one completely. I must have been getting dinner or going to the bathroom or something. Totally missed it. I like the Austin Powers ad oh, with Dr. Yes. Evil. Yes, and Even Scotty. though, again, it was, I think, also for an electric car. It was crypto and electric cars all night. And I'm not really interested in either of those things. But that was a funny commercial. I loved that movie. That might have been the moment, by the way, Christine, when I realized it dawned on me that I have now reached the age where advertisers are pandering to my nostalgia. Right? Like, I think... When you're younger, you're like, oh, it's all these throwback things for older people, and they might like it, but I don't really care. But there's purchasing power. These advertisers, I'm sure, do a lot of demographic research. Who's got the money? Who's in that sweet spot? And I guess now it's me. Yep. So I'm feeling a little older because more and more of these ads seem micro-targeted to me. Even if they don't work, they at least get my attention. I kind of get some of those warm and fuzzies flowing. I kind of felt like that during the halftime show because, you know, when they played the Stones a a few years ago, I'm like, oh, they're catering, you know, to the older crowd. And then, you know, out comes Dre. Congrats. That's us now. Yep. It's all us because my daughter knew none of it on halftime. And, and you know, I was trying to break it down for her. Me and Bobby are rapping. And she looks at us. She goes, I don't, I'm bored. Can I please have my iPad back? Because we took her iPad away so she could watch the halftime show with us. Nope. She wasn't having it. I thought 
that the halftime show was fantastic. I thought it was visually stunning. I thought the way they set the field up, like that little fake neighborhood with the map of L.A. underneath, the way that they had the dancers going through those houses and stuff, I couldn't take my eyes off of it. I thought it was done incredibly well. It was shot beautifully. And I knew, not the lyrics, but I knew every song. Those were gigantic hits. I mean, did you notice? Of course you must have. The cameo, the surprise cameo from my close personal friend, 50 Cent. He didn't tell you? I call him my, I call him my close personal friend because I saw him on the street in Manhattan a few weeks ago. And we made eye contact and I nodded. So that counts. So there was a rumor that he was going to be there, and then he was. He did, of course, in the club. And I believe they closed out, I guess it wasn't the last song, but Eminem, Lose Yourself. I guess some people were complaining about him taking a knee. I didn't even see it. Did not notice it. I think it's him trying to be relevant and make a political statement, which is almost hilarious given all the things that he's said through the years, but whatever. That had no effect on my overall view of the show. I thought it was spectacularly done, hit after hit. And I saw some of the complaints were like, oh, this is too provocative. No, they edited out all the bad words. It was a radio-friendly Super Bowl halftime show. And the other complaint I saw was, oh, well, this was too niche. It only appealed to a certain segment of the population, and the Super Bowl halftime show should appeal to a wider array of Americans. I would like you to go and check out how many albums were sold combined by those artists, this is not niche stuff. No. This is mainstream, mega-platinum stuff that may not be your genre. It's not mine either. But it is undeniably massive in terms of its reach in the United States. And it's not just an age group or a racial demographic. It cuts across a lot of that stuff. And I was really impressed. I thought that it was right up there with Prince, the year that he did it in the pouring rain, And I know it might be a hot take, but I loved Katy Perry's halftime show, one of the best spectacles I've ever seen in my life. I would put this one right up there with hers and Prince's. I I actually agree with you. I actually loved Katy Perry. Um, I thought this was good. I thought the only thing is we really just forgot about the younger people, you know, in the crowd, like any of the kids that are watching. Who cares? I don't care. And the thing is, like, they can discover this music, right? Some of them don't know it. Megan's eight, so maybe she's not going to be super into 90s hip-hop. I hope There will be younger kids who hear this music maybe for the first time. They're like, oh, my gosh, this is amazing. That always happens with halftime shows where people are like, oh, what is this Tom Petty character? Let me go download his music immediately. I love some of the reaction videos on YouTube where younger, like, Gen Zers hear things like Phil Collins, for example, for the very first time, and their minds are blown. I think you can pander to a certain generation while educating a new one. That's what I think this was. All right. I I think I tend to agree with you. I think my biggest complaint about the halftime show, it wasn't long enough. I wanted more. I especially wanted more Dr. Dre. I love me some Dr. Dre. If they took that show on the road with that set And that lineup, they would sell a lot of tickets. People would go and pay to see that in city after city after city. I might even. And it's not even directly in my wheelhouse at all. But they just did a phenomenal job. I was blown away. It was extremely well done. A-plus standing ovation 
from me. And I'm saying that as like a kind of boring white guy who loves Billy Joel. I just thought it was terrific all around and lived up to the billing. Unlike the commercials, in my opinion, Christine disagrees. Shock of all shocks. We're not seeing eye to eye on something. Maybe we'll agree on the home stretch tomorrow. Apparently she has some interesting revelations to share. We will get to that tomorrow, Tuesday edition of The Guy Benson Show. Have a great night. In the meantime, see you on Special Report on the News Channel. Back here on the radio tomorrow. Thank you for listening. I'm Charles Payne. Listen to my Unstoppable Prosperity podcast so I can get you making money right now. Whether stocks are hitting new all-time highs or in free-fall mode, opportunities abound. So why are so many potential investors still sitting on the sidelines? In a new season of my podcast, I'm going to get you in the game. After 38 years on Wall Street, I'm ready to impart some lessons and get you invested in the greatest wealth-generating machine in history. Listen anytime, everywhere at foxbusinesspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.